Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. We've got a new set of notes. The notes have just been put up online, so if you're online, you can find the notes underneath the uh, live feed on generationword.com. Basically, we're looking at the general outline of the book of James. We've done some background work. We've established, again, we, the book is not dated, so you've got a wide you know, range that you can put it in. If you think it was written by James, the brother of Jesus, uh, who is the lead pastor in Jerusalem, uh, you've got to have it written before 62, 63 A.D. If you think it's a forgery written later on in the, the second century, you can go up to 120, 130 A.D. Uh, I think it's obviously written by James, the brother of Jesus. I think we got a lot of support for that just internally and historically. Uh, and I put it between 45 and 46 A.D. is when it was being written. That's not absolute. But it, it doesn't appear to deal with anything in the Jerusalem Council where they had the Paul and Barnabas came down and talked about do the Gentiles have to follow the Jewish law. Uh, it doesn't deal with any kind of like recon, uh, recognizing circumcision issues or even that uh, a letter had been sent and there, or that there had been a conflict. It's more addressing the Christians, the believers in the Messiah uh, and challenging them to produce their Christian life, to, to live by faith, but also to produce the works, the characteristics. And so there's a little difference between this and the writings of Paul, uh, but yet there's not a conflict, which means I don't think it was uh, when Paul's ministry was heated up and the Jews were, in a sense, attacking Paul's ministry, especially around 48 A.D., you know, right after 46, 47, 48, the Jews from Jerusalem that came from James's church went up into the Antioch church right here, and they began to challenge them and make them follow the law of Moses. Uh, now that becomes the real issue. That doesn't appear to be the issue in James. In fact, you're going to see James referring to the law, the law of freedom, uh, following the law, but not the, the ritual of the law more about the characteristic of the law. What is the law of Moses? What is the law of the Jews? What is the character of God supposed to look like in the Jewish people? Now, what we have here is probably a, a letter to Jews that are believers. Uh, it's not that the Gentiles were not reading this letter. Again, we don't know for sure, but he doesn't address Gentiles at all and continues to call them brothers, uh, which re mean that they're believers, but can also have a heavy reference to that they're Jewish believers, that they're they're, they're still, you know, they grew up in the law of Moses. They grew up uh, as Jews, but now they've recognized the Messiah. And so now they're to take on the characteristic traits of the Messiah. And it appears they've moved the letter. We don't know where the letter was sent. It's sent to the 12 lost tribes or the scattered tribes of Israel, the, the 12 scattered tribes of Israel. You know, what does that mean? Is that metaphorical? That can refer to Christians under persecution. Uh, Paul would have been saved around 35 AD, went into hiding or Arabia or study somewhere for three years, reemerged in 38 AD in Damascus, where he'd been saved on the way to Damascus. And then from Damascus, he fled, went down to Jerusalem and met with James and, some, and Peter, stayed at Peter's house and just kind of asked some questions. This was before the 48 AD kind of got approval on what he was doing and this is a radical change for paul because he was persecuting the church killing these guys and now he's coming in and saying hey I'm, I'm one of you how can i help and he's already got directions from god on how he's going to help and they basically gave him a stamp of approval and he disappears back up into this area barnabas later on goes up to antioch and sees that they need some teaching and goes in search of paul finds him we don't know where somewhere up in this area apparently teaching and preaching, and then Paul comes down and starts teaching in Antioch. And that would be 46 A.D., right around that time that Paul is, is teaching. So he's met James. So I, there's no conflict. James is going to, and we have three different cases in the book of Acts where James and Paul are together, and they are not in conflict. They are not arguing. In fact, it makes it very clear they gave them the right hand of fellowship. They voted and basically approved. I don't want to say voted, but they had a meeting and they approved of what Paul was doing and sent him on his way. So the, the book of James is not attacking Paul's teaching. It almost appears not to even be aware of Paul's teaching and is addressing some of the same issues uh, that we might say saved by grace or we might talk, talk about in Paul, you know, maturing, uh, following the Spirit. James is saying the same thing, except he's more focused on you're saved by grace, saved by faith, 
but if it's faith and it's alive, you should be doing things. I mean, it's, it's like, and that's exactly, Paul's talking about maturing. So he's not saying anything in conflict. He's just saying, you say you're a believer. Well, let's see something. Uh, he also talks about things very similar to Paul talking about spirit or spiritual or the spirit, but instead uses the term like wisdom, wisdom that comes from above. God can send his spirit from above, like he did on the church, but James is talking about him sending his wisdom from above. Well, well what is that? Well, it's almost, we, and again, we'll, you'll have to decide, it's almost the same thing. It's, it's the spirit of wisdom, or the Holy Spirit, or wisdom. What are you going to call this? God's presence, you know, God's new life. Uh, and so he's saying a lot of the same things. He just doesn't have Paul's terminology, which means, again, it's not, it's, it's before Paul, before Paul became and you know, all of his letters were being written. It's not contrary. When, and what, again, it's very early, if I'm right, you know, and many commentators would agree with this. Um, it's very early, so what you have is not undeveloped uh, theology, but it's not hammered out. And we'll talk about theology in the book of James next week before we start going through it, because you don't see uh, some of the doctrine that you can see in Paul. Paul's establishing doctrine uh, and can refer to it even by terminology. And it's the early church then, you know, next couple hundred years is going to develop this theology. We can have today what we call biblical theology. You know, we've taught biblical theology where you talk about the different angelology, Christology, eschatology, soteriology, and then we find out verses that develop that understanding. You don't see that in James, but yet, as we look, we look at it next week, you can see throughout they do have Christology. They're just not talking about it in a developed form. He does talk about eschatology. I'm going to read through the book of James today. Okay, that is the goal. All right, we're going to read through it today. But when he, he does talk about the judge is coming. The judge is standing at the door. He does talk about looking forward to the future. Uh, so you've got all of these things within James. It's just not, in a sense, categorized or classified. It's behind the scenes, operating the teaching, demanding maturity in the believer okay so that's the date and then where it was written in fact if you go to page five on your notes since i'm rushed ahead here already page five on your notes uh there i've got the date of writing there see right there how how solid i am there i write 43 to 45 a.d here i wrote 45 to 46 a.d so again it depends on what you you know what, what time of day you ask me but it's it's that it's definitely before 48 A.D. It's definitely before 62 A.D., because that's when James was pushed off the Temple Mount. Uh, so it's got to be, you know, well, you, we've already talked about that. Uh, the recipients, it does not say. Chapter 1, verse 1, 1, 2, they, it identifies, uh, it gives an address, but it's not specific. Um, and what I have is this, and we talked about this one of these verses last week, Acts fifteen twenty three. This is the Jerusalem Council in 48 A.D. when they had that conflict with the Gentiles coming to Christ by faith, but they're not following the Jewish law. Do they need to be circumcised and start following the Jewish law to actually be saved? And the decision was no. So they, they, the council met, they heard everything, and then James kind of sums it up, and James pens the letter, and here's how it begins. The letter James in the Jerusalem Council sent in 40 AD was sent to the Jewish believers in these lands. Now this was an actual letter similar to the writings of James. We talked about last week how it's a very short letter, but it's got the same greeting. It's got the same terminology throughout it. So you can see it's from the hand of James, which would support the idea that James wrote the book of James. But it is addressed right here. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers. So the apostles in Jerusalem, the elders of the church in Jerusalem, and which would include Paul and Barnabas that are you know, in that group of elders, or they'd be in the group of your brothers, fellow Christians in Jerusalem that are meeting at the Jerusalem Council. They're now sending a letter at this time in 48 AD, not the book of James, but a letter from the Jerusalem Council up this way up into this area, it says right here, uh, to the believe the Gentile believers in Antioch, which is a city in Syria, uh, then it says Syria, and Cilicia, which is this area right across the top of, uh, you know, top of Syria in what we call Turkey today. So they're sending it very clearly to this area right here, 
where Paul had been ministering. That, and that's where Paul's going to write the letter to the Galatians dealing with the same issue. Galatia is up here. So Paul apparently had gone up into Galatia, some churches up here. Cappadocia is right here. So we know James and the apostles wrote a letter up into this area in Acts chapter 15. Now, in 1 Peter, which is similar to the, uh, the, the address and the style of James, Peter's writing, and Peter, as you know, was an apostle to the Jews. Excuse me, Peter was an apostle to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. So when Peter writes to the Jews, he's also writing to you know, Gentile believers that are with the Jews, but he's writing to the Jews. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Peter, Peter and Apo- he writes, Peter himself writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces. So there you have the same idea of exiles scattered. James calls them the scattered 12 tribes. The provinces of, and you can see on the map right on your notes there, Pontus, which is north of Galatia. It's up here off this map. To Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia. Paul, Peter's writing, this would be over here. Asia's on this side, not you know, it's not the entire continent. This portion was a province of Asia, which included Ephesus and Laodicea. Uh, and Bithynia, which is up in this area right here where this word says, you know, the letter Cilicia uh, uh, is written there. So Peter writes to this whole group up in here. So it's very, just understand, he's writing to Jews that are up in this area. So it's pretty safe to assume this letter is not going to Egypt, although it may have got a copy. It's not going over to Babylon. It's not going just in, you know, up into Samaria or something. It's probably going up into this area. kind of gives you a target audience of that, and that's what you see right there. Let's go to the, the first page of the notes. And we're going to uh, uh, talk about the... the we're going to read through the letter today, but I want you to see some kind of a, a framework, some kind of a structure, some kind of a theme, uh, and it, we'll, talk, we'll talk about it. Uh, the general structure and outline of the book of James, uh, establishing the theme, the format, and the outline is challenging. Now, we've gone through um, many of the books of Paul, and Paul, for example, if you choose uh, Colossians or Ephesians, even Romans, but Colossians and Ephesians, you've got six chapters. The first three are basic theology He's teaching you this is what you need to know and understand. And then, even in Romans chapter 12, he then writes, therefore, and then writes the rest of the book, and therefore, since this is true, Jesus is ascended, Satan is defeated, sin has been overcome, you are born again, you are in Christ, okay? Well, yes, amen, we're all born again, amen, yay, yay, let's sing a song. No, 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 we're not going to sing a song, we're going to, therefore now your life should look like this you should be living this way and now you've got the application so you can break paul's you know he's talking about this area of theology this doctrine this principle this conflict and then therefore this is what it should look like in your life and you can see that repeated so it's i don't say easier but it is easier to outline paul's book and and just get it consistent because it's very clear james as you're going to see uh it's, it's harder to put together. What, what is he doing? What, how is, what's his target? Uh, and there are two uh, opposing suggestions. One that's kind of gone out of popularity uh, recently. When I say recently, I mean 1900s. You know, w- you know, theology, things don't move, you know, like last week, you know, something was posted on Twitter and changed all of theology. It's like, Something began to develop in the 1800s, and seminaries taught it and mulled through it over the next 50 years, and then pretty soon, now it's in academia, it's in theology books, it's in commentaries, and now every, and it took 100 years to make the shift. So, I mean, but it used to be that it was just a, a collection of unrelated ideas and exhortations, kind of like the book of Proverbs, and that would match the point underneath there, similar to Jewish wisdom literature such as Proverbs. And there's other books outside of Scripture that also have Jewish wisdom, but it's just thoughts, you know, you know, catchy sayings. It's like, you know, I don't want to belittle it, or, you know, it's all like little, you know, memes and bumper stickers and things like that. Not really, but it's just kind of catchy little thoughts, make this application. Uh, and the various selections are loosely connected through thoughts and in various, for various varying audiences. Even the audience isn't consistent. I do think we're writing to Jews who are believers in the Messiah. Uh, and so they're still in their synagogues, possibly, or they've gone out of their synagogues and have formed a church. 
uh, but they're still, if you're, if you're a Jew and you're in a synagogue, and all of a sudden you're going to break away and understand that Jesus is the Messiah, you're going to come over here and start a church, you're not going to get an organ and have PowerPoints and have pews, you're, you're going to come from this place over to here and have another synagogue. It's gonna, you're going you're gonna to recreate a synagogue, but now you're going to focus on the Messiah having come. You're just going to add a little bit of theology into your new synagogue. And so if these are Jews, they, we can call them assemblies, we can call them churches. You could probably call them synagogues. But they're communities of believers, but they're not, they're not westernized. I mean, they're not, they're, you can't even, there's no Martin Luther, there's no Thomas Aquinas, there's no Augustine, there's no Church of Rome that's affected. These, these are Jews that have either fled Jerusalem because of the persecution or were already in synagogues that were scattered already before the time of Christ, and now they become believers in the Messiah and they're still meeting, they're still having synagogue services. They may even be meeting on Saturday. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't, you don't have the details of this. So I think we should consider this as Jews that are receiving this. So it's going to have a heavy Jewish flavor to it. Uh, this, the second point, other way of looking at it, is rhetorical themes with logical movements. Rhetorical meaning he's, got, he's making a speech. They're at rhetorical, he's... In fact, it's been suggested, and you've seen it before, even if, if you read it yourself, which you have, is they're almost like little mini-sermons. It's almost like James went to his sermon file and took out his top, most important 15 sermons and just kind of, you know, pasted them together and sent them off because they're like little sermonettes. Uh, and then he put in some kind of random order to just kind of, this is important, these are my top messages, and just send them up to these churches, and here, take a listen to these, or read these. Then I write this down. The re- this recon- recognizes sections or units within the book of James that are recognized and can stand alone, and these sections are right there, and you'll see them here in a little bit, and of course, I know you've read the book of James. Uh, a solid view of the style and structure of James could be described as this. This is a Jewish Christian writing, meaning it's a Jewish writing from a Jewish perspective, writing to believers in the Messiah, so it's Christian. But forget Gentiles, and just understand this is, you know, Christian, people that are believers in the Messiah. It's got an influence of, from Hellenistic rhetoric. And again, there, that's the logic. That's the influence. This is why many scholars will say there's no way James, the brother of Jesus, the carpenter, the son of a carpenter from Nazareth, could use a style of Hellenistic rhetoric or, or, or an argument and have a format that matches the Greeks. It's like, well, wait a minute. That's easy to say if you have this little picture that, this is the backwaters of the Roman Empire, and they're completely Ill, they're illiterate farmers and carpenters, and you know they just can barely read a menu, uh, you know, let alone a newspaper or a textbook. And then you go, well, wait a minute, they're living in Galilee, which is highly influenced by the Gentiles. The Syrian Empire was Greek; they had had definite influence here. The Ptolemy Empire, which was Greek, had come up here. They had wars back and forth through this during the 165 up to you know that that time period during the Maccabean Revolt. The Romans had moved in, so they've got Greek influence for the last 300 years. They've had 200 years. They've had Roman influence, and they're occupied by the Romans. And again, the Jews are not illiterate people. That's I mean, we're, we're reading the Old Testament is all Jewish literature. Mary was related to the priestly tribes and so there's there's education jewish education hellenistic influence and they're living in galilee right south of sephoris which is a a city that is just booming i mean that's probably where they were doing their construction work with may which may have been stonework uh joseph and jesus and maybe james would have been when it talks about carpenters uh it's not like they're out carving wooden objects uh, you know, sticks and stuff you go hunting with. They're probably stonemasons building buildings, doing decorative carvings in rock. That's at least one idea there. Because we've been there. You've seen all the, the stonework that even remains in Sephoris. But nonetheless, the idea that there's Hellenistic influence, that James was educated, uh, that is not far-fetched. That is not, you know, hard to understand. And it's arranged as a topic-to-topic Jewish wisdom text. Now, what I have right here, and we're not going to go through all of them, I've got ten outlines from different commentaries, different Bibles, and I, I don't want, I can't, I, this would be so ridiculous to even begin to read through these. Uh, but, of course, you know I'm ridiculous, so 
but the, you can just see, a, a, like the first one, chapter one, you got statements of joy, and it's identified there with joy, prayer, the reversal of roles. Uh, chapter two talks about faith and partiality. One of the big things you're always going to see in the outlines is James is very concerned about the people's favoritism towards the rich. And he's going to be, one of the issues, we're talking about the the themes of this, is stop thinking like the world. This person's influential. This person's wealthy. This person's got worldly power. We better, and I've seen this a hundred times in churches when I was involved in churches, if someone blows into the community, they've got some corporate position, and they come to church, and within three weeks, they're on the church board. Meanwhile, someone that's been in the church there, you know, has grew up in the church. They've been in the church for all these years, and they you got a local job somewhere, you know, whatever they, mow, they you know, they're mowing lawns of a lawn business, you know, and they just, you know, we'll let them mow the yard here in the church. But an executive moves in, gets a place in the corporation's world somewhere. Boom, they're on the church board, and it's kind of like, which is fine. I mean, it's just like, whoa, what, what is this? Well, this guy looks like a leader. Uh, Okay, in the world, and again, indeed, they're on a corporate board somewhere. They are a leader. They know how to run businesses. But is that, the, is that are you going to put them on the church? Now, when Paul, James is going to talk about this. Worldly wisdom, which Paul could say, the spirit of this age, or wisdom that comes down from above, which would be the spirit that comes down from above in Paul. And it's like, stop, being, stop selling out to the world system, and pretty soon your church is nothing more than a worldly corporation. Uh, and James is really pushing that, and, t- and he almost, and this is hard, hard for the Western church to embrace, especially the, the postmodern Western church. James is, I, mean, I, I may say this, and uh, we were talking about last night, I may mean James, but say Paul while I'm teaching. You know what I'm saying? I'll be thinking James. Even in a commentary last night, I was reading last night, and I showed Tony, he says, this guy, he's talking about James, 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 and then all of a sudden he says, Paul makes it very clear in chapter 2 verse 1 it's like it's like whoa this was a commentary written you know 30 years ago reprinted and re you know updated and still within the text he's it's like I read it again think is he talking about Paul but what book it's like he's not referring to any of he's talking about James and he says chapter 2 verse 1 or whatever he's talking about the book of James and he says Paul writes you know it's like which is, you know, I say, I just made me feel good because I've seen that in my own books. It's like you're reading through your books like, no, that's not what I meant, you know. And, it, and it's in print and everybody's got it. It's like, oh, I hope nobody reads it. <laughs> Which is working. It's working. It's working. Uh, but anyway, so I, as I'm teaching, I may, mean, I may mean James, but I may say Paul. So just, you know, put a filter on it. And if you correct me every time, we're never going to get to the book of James. Okay. Okay. Uh, one thing I was going to say that I, I saw this week on this partiality thing that I think, and I think James is going to be very pertinent for us at this time in our culture, at least for me. I, I'm anticipating some good things to come out of this because there's some questions I'm asking because we're in this, in this climate where you've got polar opposites. You know, you've got the, the progressive, you want to call it the left, you know, the extreme left. You've got the extreme right or the conservatives. And obviously I'm going to fall in the category of the conservatives. Uh, we'd call it the right uh but understand that's worldly i mean there this is it's like the like i was talking to 20 i i was listening or reading uh and i i want to find the article and, and and i i read it thought this is interesting and i could never find it again but it was some guys that you uh, you probably like to listen to i don't want to say their names because I, I think very highly of them they're not christian leaders although they claim to have christian faith and i think they do but they're your, your commentators. They're your, your conservative commentators. Uh, they're the ones that are, they'd be against postmodernism. They recognize the fallacy of socialism in the sense of, you know, we live in a fallen world. We live in an evil world. We're going to have to have some structure. And, and there, you know, a variety of things that we could just name off, and you would know these people. Now, they got together, and they're sitting in a panel, and they're discussing, and the Bible comes up. And now they're going to start talking about the Bible. They're going to start explaining how to read the Bible and how the Bible sometimes causes confusion because some people, this is the right. These are your people. These are my people in the world. I mean, if we're going to be political, not these people, but I'm with these people, but these people that I'm for, they, they are in a box. And I was trying to explain this to Tony, not explain it to Tony, but I was, 
because it, it helped me. Because a lot of times I'll watch these guys and listen to them. I agree with that. I agree with that. It's like, and then you begin to treat them like saviors. You know, you tr- begin to treat them like they've got the answer. You know, they're pro democracy. They're pro constitution. They're ah yes, but it's understand when you're in the world, you are limited to the world. You can side with them. You can live and die with them. But if that's all you have, you die lost. You can solve the world's problems, per se, in a political arena. Jesus said it. You can gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul. You can, again, that's not just evil. Like, you can gain the whole world and rule it evilly, or you can gain the whole world. Think about our forefathers that established the United States of America. We would like to think all of them were Christians, believed in Jesus Christ, and died and went to heaven. That's the way we would like to think. But guys like Thomas Jefferson were deists. He rejected the deity of Jesus Christ, crossed out, cut and pasted his own Bible. You can find the Jefferson Bible. I've got a copy of it. And he cut out anything that referred to Jesus and deity or miracles. There were no miracles. Jesus was not supernatural. He was a great teacher. So cut this out. This is just confusing. And then cut this out. And then Jesus said these things. And here's what C.S. Lewis and others have made this point. If he's such a great teacher, then he's teaching some pretty stupid things because you're cutting them out. So is either he's either great, you know, he's either a lunatic or the son of God. You can't have he's a great teacher, but he's not the son of God. Well, this great teacher taught that he was the son of God. Well, he wasn't right. Also, now you're disagreeing with the great teacher. So just burn the whole thing. Thomas Jefferson said, "No, there's some good stuff." So he cut it out. I, do, I am not God. I do not know Thomas Jefferson's heart. I don't even know Thomas Jefferson. I've never met him. But uh, based on that concept, that idea, there's no way Thomas Jefferson ever got out of the box. He's got great, he helped establish the country, but he cannot be born again, according to Protestant theology, according to what I think the Bible says, unless you've embraced Jesus Christ. He is your Savior that delivers you out of this box. There is hope for the future. Not in this age. The writers of the Bible say this age is passing away in all its glory. It's passing away. And if your hope is in this, and you rule this, you fix this, you solve all the social problems, but you never escape the box, you've lost your soul. There's, you haven't got it. And as I was listening to these and watching these guys go through this, they're talking about how to properly interpret the Bible. And people that read it literally run into all kinds of problems. Like, how do you explain the old age of the earth and the process of evolution and still read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 literally. It's like, yeah, that is a problem. We better paraphrase it. And now they're talking about all their worldly wisdom in the box, explaining Genesis from their limited understanding from the box. Not only that, then they talk about sin and atonement and what it means. It's like, because if Adam's not real... Then Jesus came to die for the sins of the world when Adam fell. But Adam is just a metaphor. And the tree just represents, in all cultures, there's always this issue. And there's always family problems here. And, and this is a story of Abraham. It's not really a historical story. It's a story about family and how to develop a family and all the issues. It's like, holy smokes, now that's the covenant people. Now you're not going to understand Israel in the future because you, Abraham said, and then the law of Moel, Moses, you know, they, and they go right back to, well, we don't have to believe that. Moses couldn't even write, which is ridiculous. That's 1800 material. But then they go all the way through, and they explain everything away, and everything's a picture. Everything's a typology. Everything's some kind of moral undercoding, undertone. And then you get into the New Testament, and you've got the actual event of the Son of Man <coughs> coming and dying on the cross. And it's like, now, is he, now you're right back into 1 Corinthians 15. Is he resurrected and alive? Well, and now all these worldly scholars that we follow politically, and again, I think they are correct politically in this world. There are some right answers. We live in reality. But now from their limited position inside this box, they're explaining Scripture to me and all the other Christians that are in the conservative movement. And it's like, stop. No. Tell us how to, like Thomas Jefferson, tell us how to set up a country that we can reach maximum potential as free individuals with free speech so we do have the right to pronounce or proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
but don't, I don't want Thomas Jefferson preaching the gospel. I want him helping set up the Constitution the, and, and the country. Uh, you know, definitely want him buying the Louisiana Purchase. That was a nice idea. But it's like, don't be telling me how to interpret Genesis. Now, again, with that being said, that was a little something I learned. Because he kind of, right here at this point, we are, our hope is not in the left or the right. We, one side is right, you know, and as they solve political problems. But eventually, especially if our nation is under judgment, if God has decided that he has pulled the plug, and we think, oh, Elon Musk, release all, everything's going to change. Everything's going to change because Elon Musk released all that Twitter information. Right, Elon Musk saved democracy. Now, there's a potential he has helped save democracy, but Elon Musk uh, is trying to get to Mars to save humanity and the process of evolution. I mean, he is far, far from scriptural understanding. Uh, again, I would not want to argue with Elon Musk because I respect for who he is and his gifts, but are you still in the box, Elon I mean, if we're talking about boxes, his box is much bigger than my box in the worldly sense because he can see things I don't understand. But do you have the wisdom from above? Do you understand that there is something bigger? And they're, they're trying to see it. You've got to think about all these people that were, you know, throughout history that are they're at the edge of the box trying to figure out how do we, where do we go? It's like there's only one way out of this, and that's through Jesus Christ. You've got to embrace the reality of Jesus Christ, the creator, wisdom itself. So, with that being said, my point is just be very careful. I, I'm talking to myself, is don't get too excited because the main player in all of this is God. And if God has said we're finished as a culture, anything you bring up to the table that's going to help solve your problem is really going to be part of the ultimate disaster. Kind of like what we talked about with Pharaoh. Uh, we talked about it on Monday night. Uh, God has closed their ears. We talked about it again on Tuesday night. They, they can't hear. God shut their eyes, closed their ears, and they can't hear. And it's like Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart. Finally, God hardened his heart. If we as a nation have said no to God, no to God, no to God, and God's provided us every opportunity to come to him, eventually he's going to draw a line in the sand, or in eternity, or in time, wherever, however you want to say this, and we're going to cross over, and he's going to shut our ears shut our eyes it's exactly the way uh when paul talks about the day is coming in the future where god is going to uh, send the great delusion that even the elect if it were possible would believe and that's going to come at a point in time where god has poured out his grace poured out all of his opportunities and finally it's like okay it's time for judgment he's going to shut the door like they shut the door of the ark shut the door of their eyes and understanding if it be an individual, if it be a culture, if it be the world. And now, at this point on, you'll never going to understand it. You'll hear, but never understand. You'll see, but never perceive. Because God, it says, Isaiah says it, Jesus says it, God has shut their eyes, closed their hearts, or you know, hardened their hearts. It's like, why would God do that? Because for this period of time, in every case, they had a chance. They said, no, 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 no. And so finally God says, okay. I'll give you, what was that quote? Remember that quote yesterday? Uh, there's two guys, was it C.S. Lewis said it? There's two, there's two types of people. Those, help me out, Tony. Those who say, God, your will be done. And those who say to God, my will be done. And in both cases, that's what happens. You say to God, your will be done. God says, okay. But you say to God, like Pharaoh, no, my will be done. Okay. Shut you you want you want to be spiritually blind you want to be spiritually deaf yes okay you are and now you can't see anything and the answer is right there in front of you and that leads them to their destruction and if our nation has crossed that line we have individuals you can have group you can have a culture that has crossed the line that says no we want to be spiritually blind we want to be depraved in our decision this is romans chapter two i mean it's right in the Romans thinking to be wise they became fools and their hearts began to pump ignorance god says he gave them over to their own desire saying god just says there you want this, you want this moral corruption yes we do <laughs> all right have it 
and you're seeing and you're you're seeing things you've never believed you would ever see being pumped into our culture today and it's like are we going to be able to stop that or is this the floodgates coming god says sorry now as believers in that culture you're going to have to learn how to survive and look to the wisdom above as you watch your culture go down the down the sewer it's like well would that happen jeremiah watched it 586 and and the years before lot watched it in sodom and gomorrah you read the story it's like how wicked can you become well read the, the you know lot's account in sodom it happened in jerusalem in 70 a.d the christians in fact right here these people that we're talking about are going to live up to 66 a.d and finally it's like romans are coming and jesus says when you see this get out because we're going to tear this place down and and they fled and the same thing wherever we're at in culture i'm not a prophet i can't tell you where we're at but if we have crossed the line and you see all this sewage getting pumped out into our society it's like what is god gonna do please god stop this what do we do it's like no god guess i'm giving them what they wanted it's like would god actually do this okay do we need to repeat romans chapter he gave them over to the desires of their heart them thinking to be wise they became fools and began to degrade themselves with their bodies with one another it's like who caused that well they wanted it god says no they wanted it god says no they wanted god says no god says okay there's no hope here so have it and destroy yourself now if we are in that position you know brace for impact hey we got a book uh (laughs) but anyway that's as i read this right here uh james is addressing some things right here talking about spiritual wisdom and uh i got to get to the book of james and uh and not selling out not having worldly wisdom but the wisdom from above uh, there's outlines here you can see that like i said i i can't read through all of them because that would be very monotonous but you can see that there's some similarities some patterns and you can just see the breaks when Paul, james switches uh subjects but the idea is how do they connect together and now I'm going to go to the back page again, the very back page. And here is, hopefully I can do this in about three minutes, and then I'm going to start reading. Uh, the topics that are repeated in James. And one thing that is interesting is in James chapter 1. Now watch this when I read it. James chapter 1 almost hits on every topic, almost at an introductory level, that comes in up in chapter 2 and chapter 5. It's almost like chapter 1 is just kind of like an overflow. Now, how, what is intentional? We do not know the mind of James. A lot of times when you read Paul, you can see very clearly this is what Paul, where Paul's going. He's building this case, and there's his point, because he almost lays it out for you. Where James, again, we're, I'm, I'm speculating. Commentators are speculating. But James chapter 1, testing and temptation comes up. Wisdom comes up. Prayer and faith come up. Rich and poor come up. God's giving and new birth come up. In a, in a, not, not that blatantly, but it's there. God gives. Uh, speech doing the word concern for the oppressed and avoiding worldliness those all come up in chapter one and then the second column there chapters two through five it all comes up again god i don't there's nothing there for god's giving and new birth necessarily but they, they, it repeats itself or gives you more details uh, going down that points of organization of the content of james three basic themes potentially testing wisdom and then poverty and wealth. And the idea there is in poverty. Now, I was going to say this. Poverty seems to be, uh, I don't want to say glorified, but is very positive in the book of James. And wealth is very, it's, you're leery of it. Because the idea of is, is in this culture, if you have fled Jerusalem, you are fleeing uh, the persecution of the Jews and because they didn't want you there. And you're, you're fleeing from uh, the wealthy who controlled the system, namely the priests, the priestly class. Paul was part of that. He was a Pharisee, but he worked, got letters from the high priest, and they're driving the Christians out. So in this culture, in this context, these people that have fled were either dispersed because of Assyrian or Babylonian dispersion, and they, their people had continued to live there, or they were dispersed because of persecution against the Christians. So they're being driven from their homes. They're not the rich. They're the survivors, so in this congregation, now again, it, it's not a complete parallel with us because we live in a different culture. We live in what is supposedly known as a Christian culture with freedom and when biblical principles will work in a free situation. But the poor, if you're poor, it's like first option, oh, you're poor, you must be a believer. Here, if you're wealthy, hmm, how'd you keep your money? 
It's like there's no way you can be a believer and be wealthy. But yet we do see people that are wealthy coming into the congregation, the assembly. And soon as the poor see someone joining them in faith, it's like, oh, 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 sit here, here, sit, have, sit in the front row. It's like, wait, 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 be careful. Don't have you learned anything. These wealthy are the very people who are using the world system and have not come out of the box. They're still in this box and they haven't seen, that's why they still are working the system. Or these wealthy are the ones that you're working in their fields, harvesting their crop, and they're not paying you what they should be, and you're oppressed, but they're getting rich. So be leery of the, one of the things, and you're going to read it with me. Be leery of the wealthy. Just because they've got money, the poor are the ones that have the faith because they've sold out to God and lost in this age. Now, that's not a blanket statement. You see, that, you, that's, it's like, oh, so the poor are going to heaven and the rich are, are going to hell. That's not the point. In this situation, you can see there's a different empire. There's a thousand reasons you can be poor. I mean, yeah, we could go down that whole list there. Uh, chapter one is an introductory. We said that, point three. James does appear to consist, to consist of brief, independent exhortations. Like I said before, little sermons. But there may be a pattern. Uh, and I've got some things written down there. I'm, uh, chapter, point B, it says, believers are rebuked for providing better treatment to the wealthy. Point C, people are saved or justified when they display a faith that works or faith with deeds. In other words, you're saved not because of your deeds, but you're saved, we know you're saved because we can see your deeds, which indicates you've got true faith. Now remember, that a lot of these people, with, forget Paul, a lot of these people had, had been potentially on the day of Pentecost when they saw the Spirit come or the next four or five years, and many people came to faith in Christ. They accepted Jesus, the Messiah. So without Paul's teaching, you're saved by faith. Uh, these people had been Jews. They accepted the Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, I place faith in Jesus. He is the Messiah. Got baptized. Okay, Jesus is the Messiah. I'm in. And it's like, now, right now, in the, your average church, assuming it's a healthy church, you have faith in Christ. Okay, very good. You've accepted Christ. Now, we've got to get you into some kind of dis- discipleship program. We've got to get you reading the Bible. Your, your life is now going to begin to grow in this direction. Where these people could have been, there, there's no church plan. There's no, there's no deacons. There's no one else that has gone through this journey. How did you mature in Christ? It's like, I believe Jesus is Messiah. I do too. <laughs> See you on the other side. And they just go back to their lives. It's like nothing happened. And so they, now we're, we're like 10 years later, and these guys are like, well, I'm a Christian. Okay, James, wait, wait a minute. Right, I, you, we've all acknowledged that Jesus is the true Messiah prophesied from Genesis through Isaiah, the one John the Baptist introduced. We, yes, yes. He said, okay, big deal. The demons even knew that. But they didn't do anything about it. We need to see something. We need to see some change in your life. We need to see some maturity which is not saying uh, salvation by works. It's saying salvation that is alive is going to cause a change. He's pushing them to get out of the world. And I've got to get this reading. Loyalty, okay, so point four. Uh, the loyalty to the Lord. Uh, re- you can see this right here. Remain, in chapter one, verse 21, remain loyal to the Lord by obeying the word. Do not deceive yourselves concerning your spiritual status. Well, I believe, don't be deceived you just acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah, but have you really been born again? You may be deceived. Chapter 1, verse 27, remain loyal by having pure and faultless religion. And the pure and faultless religion is helping the oppressed. Uh, remain loyal by following the wisdom that comes from above. And that's where I put in there that the spirit and, holy and wisdom may be the same. Uh, chapter 3, verse 15, avoid a lifestyle that is inconsistent with the Lord and manifest the influence of the earthly wisdom. The theme, point D, the theme, I'm going to say the theme of the book would be overcome the divided character in the believer. You are divided. You are double-minded. What does that mean? Well, in Paul, that means you have f- flesh and spirit, or uh, you have a sin nature and a born-again nature. So it's the same thing, double mind. See what James is saying, the same thing, ah, you double-minded. Well, we all are. I've got a sin nature, but I've also born again. And these are at conflict with one another. God wants you. He's jealous. Just like we saw in uh, Zechariah uh, chapter 7 and 8, 
that he says, God says, I am very jealous for Zion. I'm very jealous for Jerusalem. It's mine, and I'm going to occupy it and be there and use it for what I want. I'm going to come get it. Well, interesting, James is going to say the same thing, not about the temple or Jerusalem, but about the believer. He's very jealous for you. He wants to be in you and using you for his advantage, for his benefit, for his purpose, but instead, you're siding with the flesh. You're siding with your double-minded. You're going away and not doing it. He, he wants you, and you're, you, you don't want to go here. He wants you here, and you're over here. And you saw what he did to Jerusalem when they went here, and he wanted them here. He burned it down. I mean, he doesn't make that connection, but he uses the same, just like in Zechariah. He's very jealous for Jerusalem. James is going to say, he's very jealous for you. Don't be toying with this. You were purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he, he doesn't go into this detail, but you were purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has now claimed you, and you're still over here, worldly. He wants you here. He's jealous for you. And when God gets jealous, he takes action. Well, what do you mean? He's a good God. Uh, yeah. He was jealous for Jerusalem on a couple occasions, and it didn't end well. Uh, 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 overcome the divided character of the believer, the flesh and spirit, or sin and uh, sin nature and born again, and live a life of wholeness and perfection. Meaning, if you're going to live with God, you're going to reach this area of wholeness. And perfection is a, in quotes, of course, because we know we're not going to be perfect until we're glorified. But you're going to be living a daily life with this in mind. Uh, so, inspiring spiritual wholeness in the believer is the goal of the letter. Uh, James is trying to inspire spiritual wholeness in the believer. Uh, Paul would call this maturity or being spiritual. And, and now, in our modern definition of spiritual, it means you're seeing visions and hearing voices in the God, you, you know, all this, ooh. Spiritual for Paul, in, especially in the Corinthians, is mature. You know how to think. Okay, with that in mind, we have about 13 minutes. I'm going to read the NIV. I wanted to read the, oh, I'm missing, I'm, a whole section of my Bible is missing here. Got, see, a big chunk is gone. Well, I'll, I'll read this. I'll try to read this, but sometimes my Bible is it's like 35 years old. Sometimes little things get torn out or covered over. I'm not sure if I can read it. You see how much writing's in my Bible here? Yeah, that's not good. My writing covers up the Bible writing. Okay, James chapter 1. Yeah, Tony, if you want to bring the ESV down here, and I can get a backup copy. Uh, James, chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If If any of you lacks wisdom, He should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not not, not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossoms, falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business in the box. I added that. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. And this would be an example, possibly, of the new birth. Who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose, uh, he chose to give us, excuse me, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. I really think that's John three sixteen. Material. 
My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but... Uh, that's does but, but does what uh, that's is missing my but does not do it does not not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like there i made it through that part but the man who looks intently into the perfect law see right there the use of the word law the perfect torah so he's not shying away from it, but you're looking into it and understanding what it's saying, not just rituals. Into the perfect law that gives freedom, see, the, that's not legalism, and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts is pure and as pure and faultless is this, to look after, the, or, look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, those orphans and widows may have been created by the wealthy, not just you know, people that are poor, but they may have been driven into this position. Chapter 2. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, there's, there's the second mention of Jesus Christ in the letter. First, only two mentions of Jesus. But that's pretty solid Christology. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting uh, wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes and all, also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand here or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts or evil intentions? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Now, that's interesting. Is it not, talking to him, he says, is it not the rich who are exploiting you guys? Isn't they're the ones that are driving you into their fields to work for minimum wages? I mean, that's what he's saying. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Well, poor people aren't dragging you into court. They can't afford it. But the wealthy are, and that's maybe where the orphans and widows are coming from. The wealthy are dragging you into court, taking your possessions, taking your property. That's gen, fourth generation. And these guys are heading into the fourth, well, yeah, they're in the fourth generation, 30 to 70 AD. So the wealthy would be taking their possessions, just like they did in the, the elite, taking the property of the widow who's got property, but now she's homeless because she lost it in court to the elite. Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? In other words, there's a slam on the wealthy. Again, potentially fourth generation elite. If you really keep the royal law, there's a mention of law again. It was the, uh, the, the law of freedom, now it's, or the perfect law. Now it's the royal law found in Scripture. Now again, found in Scripture in, in 45 AD, what's the royal law found in Scripture? The book of Matthew? No, Galatians, no, Romans, Revelation, no, it's Old Testament. The royal law found in Scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, and it's exactly, that's a quote. You are doing right, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged, watch this, judged by the law that gives freedom. Right there. Do not act and speak like one that's to be judged by the Mosaic law, but the law that gives freedom. Now, again, it's in a sense possibly the same thing, except you've got to see it through the eyes of Jesus. Okay, we'll talk about that. But see, that's just interesting. The law that gives freedom. That's not legalism. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And he's saying, You, you may have confessed Jesus the Messiah, but you've got dead, you don't have faith. You've got a, 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 a theological, a doctrinal position. But some will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the, okay, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Meaning they've got, the demons believe, and they've got works. What's their works? They're shuddering. Even demons have works. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did uh, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar, you see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled what that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. So in other words, you got faith, well, do what you're supposed to, and you'll be God's friend. Not a friend of the world, but a friend of God. Now, that's coming up later. You see that a person is justified by what he does, not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep the whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take a ship as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it, takes, but it makes great boast. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and itself is set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise in understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy, and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Well, that answers like a thousand questions right there. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law. There's law again. And judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it. You are sitting in judgment on it. You think you're God. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen. You who say, today or tomorrow we'll... Now, this is going towards the rich again right here. You who say, today and tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and break. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins now listen you rich people weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes your bitcoin is worthless your gold and silver are corroded their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire you have hoarded wealth in the last days look the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. That referred to their workers, not just out slaughtering them, but, you know, because of their employment. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the air of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And we're done. That is the book of James in the NIV. And as we look at those outlines and you look at it, you can see kind of some themes that are popping up. Uh, he's definitely writing in a sense of brothers, brothers, but at the same time is also condemning some, like, you know, don't, don't lie to me. You're, you're, you're not a believer or you're not growing. Uh, and he definitely is warning them, don't get caught in the world. Keep pursuing this wisdom. Keep pursuing uh, Jesus Christ. And we'll talk more about that. Obviously, we haven't even started the book yet. Next week, at the bottom of the last page, uh, I'm going to break down the uh, yeah, bottom of the last page right here. Theology in James. I just want to point out that, like, you can see, could you see some eschatology in there? It judges at the door. Uh, that it's not full eschatology, but it plays into it. You can see Christology, you know, the glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. I mean, glorious Lord, I mean, that's the name of God. So, I mean, he's definitely swinging some theology in there but he's not teaching theology it's almost like at that early time some of that stuff was just assumed 
and, 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 and people that were accepting Christ did not necessarily know what they were buying into. You know, they, I mean, they were just kind of like, okay. And then as it began to grow through time, and as Paul came, they had to be identified. Listen, it's not this, it's this. It's not this, it's this. And they had to identify some of those things. Uh, in, in proper detail. Okay, I'll pray and we're done. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into these things. We thank you for your word. We do ask that we, by our, the fact that we've got new life, the fact that we have the spirit within us, would hear your word, that we'd allow it to transform our lives, that we would not shut our eyes or stop up our ears, but we'd allow it to transform us and lead us to a greater understanding of who Jesus Christ is and that we can produce the things you've called us to. We ask that we would be humble servants of you at this time in history, that you'd give us guidance and direction, especially through these times that, that can be very confusing and provide us with good leadership, provide us with direction in our own hearts that we, again, may follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for your time.